Welcome to Seemingly Ordinary. It's a podcast where I interview people who on the surface appear to be ordinary, but underneath the surface, they have amazing things going on. Christy Dahlke has had the most incredible life for the last five years. A major life change led her to moving across the nation, getting a PhD, switching careers, dating somebody great, and winning a prize in a dance competition in a new type of dance that she had never done before. Today, we're mostly focusing on the dance competition because it's just an incredible story of a person over 30 who was not only taking on something brand new, but also unlearning something at which she excelled for 16 years. Hey, Christy. Hey. How are you, Tim? I'm good. Before we get into the competition, uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, Well, I was uh, born and raised in Kansas City and um, lived there most of my life until the last three years. Um, And... I moved to Florida uh, three years ago, and part of the reason I did is because I met the person I'm dating at a dance competition, (laughs) and um, uh, one thing led to another, and I changed jobs, and here I am, so. You'll have to use, like, dance metaphors when you speak, so I tap danced my way to Florida, or just whatever, (laughs) something like that, maybe. Um, Okay, so what made you get into dance recently? Well, recently, um, I got into dance after I had a really big major life transition, and I had been away from it for probably close to 15 years. Prior to that, it was a massive part of my life, um, and it was something that I actually thought I was going to have a career in, and then I got injured and had to change gears, so I became a teacher, <laughs> and then... Uh, um, decided to leave teaching and go get my doctorate in um, counseling psychology and uh, another big life change happened. And I was like, you know, I just want to, I want to do something fun that I loved to do when I was younger and I miss it. And so um, it was just kind of a combination of, of a whole bunch of life changes and me trying to find myself, I think, that led me back to dance. You know, you're kind of an extreme person in a few respects because, I mean, you did ballet for about 15 years, and I think that's a long time to do anything. Mm-hmm. And then you had a satisfying career as a teacher, but then you decided to get a PhD. I mean, what percentage <laughs> of Americans have a PhD? At the most, maybe 1%? Yeah, I, I, you know, it was one of those things where as a, as a little girl, I, I've always loved learning. It's one of the things that I... Um, just have always, always loved. And I grew up in a family of teachers. So education has always been at the forefront. Going to college was never a question. It was just sort of like, which one are you going to do? And, and that sort of thing. And, um, <laughs> uh, because I grew up in that environment, um, I got to see all the different regalia that people wear for the different degrees. And, um, my goal as a little girl was to get to the degree where you get the cool hats. which is shaped like an octagon um so that was part of uh the impetus for for getting the phd well i think there's a lot of people who want to wear octagonal hats but they (laughs) they don't say you know i think i'll just stay in school for 
four to seven years and work on a dissertation in order to get the hat. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's why I didn't actually get it in um, English or in education, uh, which are my undergrad degrees, uh, because I did not love those things enough to be willing to put in that amount of time. Um, And I wanted to wait until I found something that I knew I would stick with. And so psychology actually, um, human behavior, that's what psychology is, just a study of human behavior, um, really, really interested me. And so um, that's how I ended up doing that. Well, I just think it's also rather cool that after you maxed things out intellectually with a PhD, then you decide, now I want to max things out with fun. So then you go yeah. back to dance. So I, yeah. I guess I guess we're uh, wanting to hear the whole story just from the first day back at dance to all the twists and turns all mm-hmm. the way through uh, to when you finally received a prize. Okay. So I've been kind of thinking about it for a while. Like I want to get back and dance, but I don't want to do ballet, um, partly because ballet is very, very hard on your body. And my body at that age just was like, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. <laughs> um, and I also really wanted to challenge myself and do partner dancing. I, I love watching ballroom dancing and that sort of thing. And so I was like, you know, I think that's what I want to try. Um, so I found a dance studio based on <laughs> a recommendation of my dentist and um, uh, walked in one Saturday morning and they were having a class and um, uh, one of the instructors came over and was like, hi, how can I help you? And I was like, well, you know, I, I think I'm interested in this, but I'm not quite sure what or how uh, I would like to do it. I just know I would like to try to take a lesson. And, and they were like, oh, cool. We can set you up with this instructor. They'll give you a, an intro lesson and they'll teach you like three different less, uh, styles of dance. And you can just sort of pick which one you want to focus on. So I was like, all right. So I took a lesson. Um, it happened to be scheduled for the same weekend that they were preparing for their showcase, which is like a big recital. And um, so I took this lesson. It was so much fun to just be back uh, dancing and moving. And then he taught me some steps to waltz, some steps to East Coast swing, and some steps to West Coast swing. And then was just like, hey, which one do you like the best? And and I was like, well, I really like waltz because it reminds me of ballet. But West Coast swing is super hard, but it looks like it was so much fun. Um, and I and I sucked at it, by the way, in that lesson. Like I, I, it was super hard, and and I think it was the challenge that I was like, I think I want to do that one. Um, he's all cool, and and if you have a chance, you should come to our showcase and see, you know, kind of all of the different styles that we do. So I did, <laughs> and that's another thing that is completely outside my normal way of doing things. I was like, all right, I'll buy a ticket, I'll come. Um, so I went and uh, come to find out that the studio was owned by the parents of a student of mine that had graduated that I taught. <laughs> very, very small world. They were like, Mrs. Khan, what are you doing here? <laughs> I'm like, what are you guys doing here? We own this place. So, um, so that was a lot of fun. It was a very cool introduction to being able to see where I could go right off the bat. And then at the end of the um, 
the night, they actually have the audience get up and social dance because most of the people going also dance themselves. Um, keep in mind, I'd only had one lesson. So like these people are pulling me up to, I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And they're all, it's okay. It's okay. We got you. And, and it was just a really welcoming environment. And, um, I was intimidated as all get out, but it was fun. And, um, so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm going to do this. So I signed up for private lessons once a week. And then they also have, um, group lessons. Uh, and my instructor was like, you know, you should probably try to do this in the group class setting because you'll get a chance to dance with different partners and it'll help you learn it and pick it up faster. Um, and I was like, okay, so, so I did that. And, um, and then they had social dances once a week too. So I went from no dancing for 15 years to dancing three times a week, <laughs> um, and also practicing in my living room and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and I did that for, uh, a solid six months. Um, and around the six month mark, my instructor was like, wow, you're picking this up really fast. I can totally see the ballet thing is, is, is there. Um, maybe you should think about doing one of the showcase dances, like what you saw on the first day that you came to the studio. And, and I was like, are you sure? And, oh yeah, I think it'd be great. So so add another day of dance per week because that's the rehearsal time, right? Um, so now I'm having a lesson, a rehearsal, a group class, and a social dance um, for the next. Uh, it, it probably took about three or four months to put that together. Um, and so a, a year later, roughly, um, at that same showcase, here I am doing my first performance um, that in 15 years, and I and that was one of the things I loved about ballet was performing. Um, so it was really fun to just be back on the stage. Um, and so then, uh, one thing you can do in ballroom um, and West Coast Swing, which is a, a different form, it's not exactly in ballroom; it's its own thing. Is you can do these competitions, and um, you can go and and um, travel around the country and you spend a whole weekend doing nothing but dancing and various competitions and they're leveled. So like they have the novice and the newcomer group, then they have an intermediate group and they have an advanced group and masters and all stars and champions and so forth. Um, and people show up from all over the country West Coast Swing happens to be one of those um, partner dances where you actually change partners every time. It's a brand new partner every time. And you don't really have a routine. You know basic patterns and steps, but every dance is improvised. Um, and it really mainly follows the leader-follow partner relationship, and that's how you figure out how you're going to dance and what you're going to do. Um, now, they do have routines, and those are the ones that um, you can compete and that sort of thing. But you can also compete in um, uh, – basically, if you were to walk into one of the competitions where it's not a routine, you go by level category, and they line up all of the followers on one side of the ballroom and all of the leaders on another side of the ballroom. And then you just pair up, like, whoever is next in line. That's who you're dancing with. Um, 
and the judges will play two songs um, that you get with that partner and you haven't heard these songs before you don't know what they're going to be <laughs> you dance the two songs and then they pick uh, out of that group they pick the top 10 um, those 10 couples then get to go and do three songs again you don't know what they are and you're working with a partner that you danced with like 20 minutes ago but that's it um, and then uh, they get ranked um, first, second, third, fourth, you know, that sort of thing. So I ended up going to one of those competitions. My first one was in Kansas City, um, and I, I entered the newcomer part um, and actually won that, <laughs> um, which is what was just wild to me. I was like, what? <laughs> and um, and it was fun. And, and it, it's. It, it was just a great way to meet a lot of people, and so I was hooked. So then um, I went to a couple more of those competitions. Along the way, my dance instructor was like, hey, would you like to compete a routine at one of these competitions? And so we came up with an, another routine, a different one from the one that we did for the showcase. And we took it to the Derby City Swing, which is in Kentucky and Louisville, right around. It's It happens right around the time of the Kentucky Derby. Um, and we competed that one and won third place, <laughs> which is crazy. <laughs> um, and then uh, to top it off, the, later that year, um, my dance instructor was like, you know, you really should go and experience the, the Open, um, which is the International uh, West Coast Swing Dance Competition. Um, it's held every year out in Burbank, California, and my sister at the time was living really close to Burbank, and it happens over Thanksgiving weekend. So I was like, well, I can go visit her, have Thanksgiving with my sister, go hit this West Coast Swing Dance Competition and see what happens, you know? And I didn't have a routine or anything like that. I just went, and I competed in the novice division and, and didn't get anywhere close to like anything which is fine because it was like an international competition so <laughs> um, i wasn't expecting anything at all um but i did happen to meet um the person that i am dating now who uh was running the registration desk and is also an instructor and um uh, asked me to dance there and started to talk to me and and found out he lived in Florida and I lived in Kansas yet we met at a dance competition in California and you know about six six months later or so was when um I moved down to Florida and I guess the rest is history so. yeah so I guess that's the real first prize is just landing yeah. somebody <laughs> yes, great <laughs> well, I, I have a few questions, I guess, related about the story. I, I guess, first of all, I'm just amazed that you pick something up that's brand new. You come in first in one competition, come in third in another competition, and then meet just an absolutely terrific guy at the third competition. I, it seems like this is just such a, a row of jackpots. Now, <laughs> I think it's a God thing, uh, truly. There's so much of this that definitely, I think, God had a lot to do with orchestrating that. So yeah, just smiling down upon you for sure. Well, <laughs> well, let me ask. Uh, you know, if somebody said, "Hey, we want you to come and practice three times a week, and then plus maybe take private lessons, and then plus do this other thing, and then in your off time practice in your living room," I would be <laughs> thinking, "How do I have time for any of this?" I mean, uh -huh. here. Here, I, you either were working on your PhD or you were working as a PhD during this time. 
Uh-huh. You're a busy person. How do you possibly have time for all of this? You know, it actually was a more of a stress reliever for me. And um, by this time, I was working full time as a psychologist at a hospital in Kansas City in the trauma um, clinic. And so my my day job was full of very rewarding, but also very, very stressful and taxing work. Um, And so I was looking for things to do in the evenings that didn't involve just come home, turn on the TV and, um, you know, lose myself in Netflix or something like that. Right. So um, and I I was used to the rigors of dance from when I was um, younger and, and spent, you know, when I was a ballerina, I danced four or five days a week. And usually it was for about three to six hours at a time. Mm. Um, And so, uh, and I did that for years. So that part didn't really like, I don't know. It didn't, I was like, yeah, that's what you do with dance. Okay. (laughs) So so it didn't really um, bother me too much. Okay. So three to six hours doesn't phase you. I, I didn't really realize dancers practiced quite that long. That's impressive. Um, yeah, so at three hours were generally um, after school, uh, and then classes were, I would take two classes in an evening, and classes were generally an hour and a half, and then Saturdays were, it was the whole day, um, usually it was three hours of class, like a, a dance class, and then there were rehearsals for the shows that we would put on, and so when you put all that together, it's about a six-hour day. Okay, so, so dance is either a 20 hour a week job or it's a 30 hour a week job or it's a full-time 40 hour a week job that's kind of what i'm hearing so you've got (laughs) it doesn't have to be but it can be yeah well i'd like you to put on your phd in psychology hat for just a second um Uh so if a person is dealing with trauma patients all day long and dealing with people who have have just i mean they have to be in the hospital because of various traumas right then i suppose Dancing is something that requires your entire brain power. You probably uh-huh. can't dance and be thinking about something else. 100% accurate, yes. So so it's really good in the sense for a person with a, a sharp mind, such as yourself, you want to keep your brain highly engaged, but you don't mm-hmm. want to go home and ruminate. Correct. Right? So is, yeah. is, that, is that part of your motivation for doing this? Yeah. And I just, you know, honestly, work-life balance is really important to me and it has become more so as I transition. It was always important to me when I was teaching, especially as an English teacher, you just go home and grade papers and and that is not (laughs) work-life balance. So I had to figure it out as a teacher, how to actually like stop working and do life, you know, and then um, same thing uh, as a psychologist now, I, it really is important to me to have that boundary and separation between what I do at work and what I do when I'm not at work. And the things that I do when I'm not at work, I really want them to be as restorative and filling my bucket as possible. Um, and for me, I'm a, I'm a pretty kinesthetic person. Um, I always have really gotten a lot out of using my body um, to help me feel better. And so, um, 
I've always wanted to do something physical. And I've noticed that the periods in my life when I got really low and, and really wasn't doing well were those periods where I wasn't doing anything physical. I, I really wasn't um, actually exercising in any way, shape, or form or moving my body or, or stretching or anything like that. So, um, so yeah, so it, it, it does. And, and you're right. It makes you use your, all of your brain. Um, you know, from a psychologist, like a geeky perspective, you have to use your full neurocortex and you're having to use your cerebellum and you're having to use like all parts of your brain because it's not just thinking about learning the steps and things like that, but it's actually having to physically make your muscles move in a way that they don't normally move when you're just walking, you know? Right, right. I guess we're using our uh, cerebrum, our cerebellum and our brainstem. Yes, yes. Just absolutely everything. Uh, I guess what would they refer to that to? Maybe as the mind and then the, the emotions and then just the kinesthetic, the body, essentially. Mm -hmm. So um, as long as we're on the physical subject, I just want to ask you this. Uh, so I, I ran across this theory someplace else, and it really has appealed to me. And the theory is, is that probably everybody would benefit from taking up some kind of a physical discipline. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, you could get into dance, or some people get into yoga, or some people get into jujitsu or, yeah. or karate. You know, people need to adopt some kind of a physical discipline where you are pushing yourself to the edge. Mm -hmm. And part of it is, is stress relief, but another part of it is to teach you humility. Because, oh, yes. <laughs> you know, you try, to, you try to execute a particular move, and then you realize, I can't. I can't mm -hmm. execute this move. I'm not agile. I don't have the stamina. I don't have the strength. I, I don't have the coordination. And, yep. and so you, you see these goals and then you just want to work at them and work at them. And then you have these breakthroughs and then you feel so good. But the humility stays because, hey, it might have taken a year to get into that position. Uh -huh. but what, what are your thoughts on how every human being could benefit if they had some sort of a physical discipline that pushed them to their edge and then mm -hmm. knocked them over and they had to get themselves back up again. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it is, I, I, I love your take on it and I think that's very accurate. Um, you know, learning a new dance for me, I had to unlearn almost everything I had learned in muscle memory um, in ballet. So ballet is a very upright, you're on your toes, your, your center of gravity is very up. Um, and then West Coast swing is about as opposite to that as you can get. Uh, your center of gravity is down and back. You are on your heels more than you are on your toes. And, and you're actually rolling through your feet and um, your balance is completely different. And just in order to make it look smooth, so West Coast Swing actually kind of looks like ice skating when it's done really well. It's very, very smooth, um, but it has a swing element to it. And um, so, oh my gosh, talk about humbling, um, having to completely unlearn something that I was really good at and that my... Um, my body naturally because of all the years of training just kind of went into, um, we would start to just, you know, it became a thing in my lessons, like Christy, stop being a ballerina, quit it, stop it, you know? <laughs> and, um, 
And, uh, but by the same token, I didn't have to completely give up all of that. Once I was able to get kind of the mechanics of West Coast down, the, um, because it has that sort of skatey, smooth element to it, some of the stuff from ballet really lent itself um, to kind of developing a style. So I was able to sort of get like a hybrid between the two. Um, but in terms of, of pushing yourself and then hitting your limit and then realizing that you're, you're not as good as you think you are or should be, and then having to try again, um, I think it's just the, the, the edge of learning, you know? Um, uh, when I'm working with some of my patients, sometimes I talk about stretch goals. And those are those goals that are just outside your reach. They're not so far outside your reach that you can't possibly get to them and they're unrealistic. But they do force you to stretch. And you may achieve them and you might not. But the process of doing so is what um, just helps make you, I think, a more resilient person. Um, and able to deal with setbacks when they happen. Um, in terms of just being physical, back to your original question of should everyone have something physical? You know, before we had these things called telephones and laptops and computers and things like that, life was way more physical than it is now. Um, and I think we, as human beings, we are physical creatures and we've been designed with an amazing body um, but our body is going to deteriorate if we don't use it and take care of it. And so pushing yourself to do something with movement, um, I think is really essential for human beings. I think that's really worth people's time and energy to think that through. If, if you don't mind, I just have maybe another physical question or two sure. along yeah. those lines. Do you find that in something demanding like either ballet or competition West Coast Swing, do you also have to pay attention to how much sleep, how much water, what type of calories you're consuming, uh, maybe ancillary exercises, I don't know, maybe weightlifting, maybe running, maybe yoga? Uh, yeah. What, what are the spillovers or the ancillaries that you have to consider? So, so it kind of depends on your goal. So some people go into this sort of like I did, like, Hey, I just want to learn a social dance to meet people. Um, in, in that situation, I would say the biggest thing is make sure that you're hydrating um, and make sure that you're stretching because movement, even if it is, um, uh, West coast is a walking dance. So it's, it's not, um, you're very rarely going to break a major sweat unless you're dancing like for hours and people can, you can social dance for hours, but if you just go to a class and that sort of thing, you're probably not going to break a major sweat. Um, but you are still moving and you will get sore, especially with the repetitive motions um, and patterns. And so I think that's important to do. Um, obviously what you put in your body is your fuel. Um, and so, you know, People who want to dance, like when I was doing ballet um, and, and dancing for those many hours, and, and ballet is a more intensive, you will break a sweat in a ballet class. Um, and uh, so for that, yeah, I was, I was paying more attention to what I was eating younger than I have been now. I probably should pay more attention to what I'm eating now, but um, that sort of thing. And then in, in terms of the ancillary um, I think uh, stretching and balance classes are really, really good for dance. 
um, because they help you to fine tune those um, little tendons and ligaments and things that actually are the things that help you move um, and and make it look smooth and, and that sort of thing. And, and um, yoga or Pilates um, are really good for that. But you also need to be able to actually like do this and and have some cardio behind it so that you're not huffing and puffing after just one or two dances and that are only like one or two minutes long, you know. So um so walking or bicycling or jogging or you know, any of those kinds of things can be helpful too. Any kind of strength training? Um some people do strength training. The ones who are the champions and the pros that compete the circuits and, and all of that, but they're also teachers and this is how they make their living. Um, they will do a regimen that is much closer to what athletes will do in terms of making sure that they are cross-training um, and doing uh, uh, various exercises. So so weight training or stretching or you know um, some days of cardio, that sort of thing. But again, it sort of depends on what your goals are with the dance, um, West Coast in particular, and and what you want to do with it. So, okay, um, just a few questions about learning a brand new style of dance. Um, mm-hmm. You've already kind of alluded to a few of the things that you had to unlearn. Um, you you could go with that if you want to, and tell me a little bit more about what you had to unlearn in order mm-hmm. to learn something new, or. You could just tell me, what is it like going from a solo dance to a partner dance? Uh, um, well, it involves kind of both of those things. So uh, solo dancing, you're obviously by yourself. <laughs> now, ballet, you can do partner dancing, but the majority of the folks who get into ballet, especially a female, um, are probably never, ever going to actually get to where they can do partner dancing, partly because there are so many fewer men in ballet than there are women and that's kind of hard to come by and a lot of times those classes partnering classes um, are only taught at more elite places for ballet where the, where the goal is to turn you into a professional ballerina or a professional ballet dancer um, so I spent them I did do some partner dancing in ballet but they were specifically for specific roles in different performances. So it was not a regular thing for me. It was sort of a special thing. And it, it was hard because in partner dancing, it's more like um, having a conversation and you're, you have to take care of your own balance, but you also have to rely on the other person. It's, it's just very different. Whereas in solo dancing, it's all you, right? Like if, if you're going to do a whole bunch of turns on one foot, if you're off balance, like it's your fault, right? <laughs> but <laughs> right. If, you, if you're doing a whole bunch of turns with a partner, it's not necessarily always your fault if you can't get all of those done. Like sometimes it's the other person who is either helping you get them done or, or can do something like like a top spinning, just nudge the top a little bit and it'll, it'll fall over, right? So, um. The first thing that I really noticed about and and that I really loved about the teacher that I have for West Coast Swing is um, he taught about partner dancing as if it was a conversation. 
Um, and every metaphor he used for how to lead or follow, how to do with conversation, right? And so, for example, um, the leader is typically the one who initiates the movement, and then the follow follows whatever it is that the leader is initiating, right? So if you're having a conversation and the follower anticipates what the leader is saying, it's sort of like you and me talking, but you interrupting me because you think you know what I'm going to say. And so you just start saying it before I've even like asked the question. Right. (laughs) And, and the temptation when you're learning a new partner dance, um, because most of the time they're teaching you patterns. So you learn your part of it. You learn what the steps are for your part and they go in a certain order and they follow a certain pattern. And so you, you're learning your part of it. And so then you, you hold somebody's hand and they're supposed to lead you in that, but you know, your part. And so you just do your part <laughs> instead of listening because they may want to slow it down or speed it up or in the middle of it, do a little something as an improv or whatever. And if you're only paying attention to your part of it, you miss it completely and you just do the pattern and then it, the moment is lost. Um, so I learned so much about how to listen um, and how to respond and how to wait um, and I was, I was going through some stuff with relationships at the time. And so it's very timely to actually have those metaphors of, you know, it's important to not always show up and, and say you have the answer and just roll right on with your answer. Like sometimes you really do just need to let the leader lead you. You're going to have a much better experience in the dance if you actually like wait and let them finish what they're asking and then you respond bef- instead of, you know, steamrolling over what they're, they're going to say. Um, and by the same token, leaders tend to kind of, um, when they're learning a dance, because they have to learn, if, if a guy's going to learn a dance, just, just know at partner dancing, um, they have to learn so much more, so much, uh, just so much more information. They have to learn not only their steps and, and their side of it, but they also have to learn how to get the follower to do what it is they're wanting them to do. So they also have to think about the follower's side. So it takes about six months for a, a follower to learn a dance well enough to be able to just kind of do it and, and not have to sit there and think about every single step. It takes about a year for, for leaders to do that. Mm. Um, and so so the leaders have to learn how to not um, force the follower to do whatever the pattern is that they want them to do, and also to not get mad if the follower doesn't do it exactly the way that they want it. So it's, it's pretty common, in, in West Coast anyway, for a leader to start a pattern and go, here, I want you to do a left side pass, but they didn't lead it very clearly. So the follower is a little confused about like, well, did you want a left side pass? Or did you want this other thing that starts out like a left side pass, but it actually turns into something completely different. And so they'll do the completely different thing. And then the leader will be like, why'd you do that? That's not what I led. (laughs) And the follower's like, well, actually, I couldn't really tell what you wanted. So I did what you thought, what I thought you wanted. (laughs) So there's a lot of miscommunication that can happen. And part of the fun of the dance is learning how to sort of fail together 
and learn how to communicate better together. Um, but it also is a great way to learn how to have a lot of um, grace for your partner um, and, and remembering that both people are just trying to have a conversation. They're just doing it without words, you know? Well, so. it's, it's amazing how people come up with these metaphors in the first place that relationships are like a dance, you know, and, uh -huh. and now you're saying dance is like a relationship. Yep. Yep. And you can have yeah. good communication. You can have bad communication. You can have people anticipate and interrupt. And that's not yeah. such a great thing. And uh, I think you drew a distinction between leaders and tyrants that the leader really <laughs> has to kind of like, uh, absorb what the follower is capable of doing. Yeah, uh -huh. I guess it'd yep. be like a teacher. You wouldn't want to have, say, I don't know, a class of fourth graders and then have, say, a 12th grade teacher come in and say, today we're doing calculus. Uh, you know, the, the teacher has to meet the follower Absolutely. where the follower's and at. Yeah, and, and, and that was something that we talked a lot about in our social dances. Our, our particular instructor was really good about trying to bring in new dancers. Um, but part of what he would do is he would talk to the dancers that were a little more advanced. And by that, I mean, they'd been in classes maybe a couple more months than the, the brand new people. <laughs> and he would say, do you remember how it felt the first time you came into class and you were so intimidated and you didn't know what you were doing? And do you remember how it felt when the person you got paired up with actually just was like, hey, you're doing great. Everybody has a day one, you know, versus do you remember how it felt when you maybe had a partner who was like, you didn't do that right. That's not what I led, you know, and believe it or not, sometimes that actually does happen in classes with partner classes. You know, you got people who've been in there doing these dances for years and years and years, and they're taking a class and then they are paired up with someone who this is their first day. And they're like, that's not what I wanted. You should do it this way. You know, and um, you actually do encounter these temperamental dancers. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> it is one of the arts after all. So um, uh, I, I think it's a rule that most artists are temperamental. <laughs> so. Right, right. Hey, otherwise, well, I don't know. Maybe there's like a Mr. Spock out there who's also a painter, <laughs> but maybe not. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. just just fascinating, just kind of hearing all these metaphors for things. Um, we've also kind of touched on the whole subject of unlearning, you know, mm -hmm. having to unlearn a number of things from ballet because mm -hmm. West Coast Swing is the opposite. Um, yeah. I, I feel like uh, there's a lot of areas of life where I wish I could unlearn things. You mm -hmm. know, like you think you know what's true about X, Y, or Z, later on you find out that it's not, it's the exact opposite on mm -hmm. something. Um, a simple example for me, I'm just going to be completely random here, is about President U.S. Grant. When mm -hmm. I was a kid, historians gave him a bad rating and said that he was a terrible president, that he was personally very honest, but there was a lot of corruption and stealing going on in his administration. Then when I got older, people pointed out that he was absolutely terrific on Reconstruction. He crushed the Ku Klux Klan and they stayed crushed for 40 years. Uh, he enforced the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution. Uh, you know, he, he was just absolutely gangbusters for 
the South for African Americans, uh, just for unifying the country. And he was a landslide president two times in a row. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of like when I was a kid, Grant is bad. Grant's an idiot. He's personally honest. There's a crime wave going on in his administration. When I'm a little older, historians are saying, good job, Grant. Grant reconsidered. And, you know, if I got stuck in that first impression, oh, Grant's a drunk, then I never could have gotten to, like, the second impression, which is Grant beat the bottle, and Grant wound up being this amazing person. Yeah. So I I just, I'm wondering, is there a trick to unlearning? Because sometimes what we learn is garbage. Well, I think... I think the first trick is just recognizing that you need to change. (laughs) Like like the way that you're doing it just isn't working. And, um, and when I approached West coast swing, for example, I approached it from the mindset of ballet because that's what I knew. And I was like, Oh, you know what? I, I know how to pick up on, on dance moves pretty quickly. I think I can figure this out. And then, um, you know, not even three steps into it, my my dance teacher's like, no, let's try it again. You need like that. That isn't it, <laughs> you know. And and it took sort of having a like that mirror put up, and um, for me to actually recognize, like, wait a second, that when I try to do it, it doesn't look like that, and I want it to look like that. So I got to change something, you know. So. Um, I think the first step is just even having awareness that maybe you need to actually change what you're doing. Um, the second thing though, I think is having, um, I guess a very compassionate stance to yourself. And it also, I think helps to have someone who's guiding you along the way from a very compassionate stance. Um, if my dance instructor had been kind of a taskmaster or had said, no, that's wrong. Do it again. No, that's wrong. Do it again. I would not have stuck with West coast swing. I I truly wouldn't. Um, but what I got instead was, um, a lot of celebrating of any little moment that I actually got it. Even if it was just like one or two steps that really, truly I had the balance, right. I had everything. He would be like, yes, that's it. That's what I'm talking about. And then I, I, I'm kind of visual and kinesthetic when I'm dancing. So thankfully we had a mirror in the studio and I'd be like, wait, I I really need to not only see it, but I need to feel the difference. Can you show me how it is supposed to be? And then can you also show me how it is not supposed to be so that I can actually compare the two and know the difference and feel the difference. Right. So it took, me actually putting in the time and effort and the desire um, to actually shift also. And so if we were to translate that into other areas of of trying to learn and unlearn, I think first a person really needs to believe there's a reason that they need to unlearn something. Mm. Um, why, Why would you unlearn it if there's no good reason to do so? Right. Um, and then secondly, be willing to be humble enough to know that you're not going to get, you're not going to unlearn it in one fell swoop. You know, it took me 15 years to get the muscle memory for ballet and it, it certainly wasn't going to disappear in like an hour, you know? (laughs) So, um, 
So having some grace for yourself and some humility too, just just to know that it, it's going to be a series of trials and errors and you're probably going to fall on your face more times than you're going to actually experience success. Um, but if you keep at it, it, it can pay off, you know. Um, and I also wasn't trying to unlearn something because somebody else told me that it was, that I should. Um, or, you know, my certainly my, my uh, instructor didn't sit there and say to me, let me educate you on this. Let me educate you on, you know, um, on West Coast Swing and everything about it. He, he didn't take that tack with me at all. And if he had, I would have walked out the door. Um, <laughs> so so I, I don't know. I mean, I think there's a lot of things that go into unlearning. I, I do too. Um, I, I want to ask just a little bit about compassion versus discipline. Because mm-hmm. I really do believe, I just love the title of this man's book, Discipline Equals Freedom by Jocko mm-hmm. Willick. And if you know this man, Jocko Willick, he also seems to me to be an extremely compassionate person. You know, mm-hmm. he's happily married. He's got four great kids. Uh, if you listen to his podcast or read his books, you definitely see that he wants people to be their best. And uh, w- with certain people, he's going to push them very hard, but those were usually maybe SEALs. Uh, mm-hmm. With 10-year-olds, his 10-year-old daughter, he, he can be very gentle. And so I, I think there's like some flexibility. I'd like to ask you just a little bit about both because you really kind of emphasize the compassionate side. And I believe in that very strongly, the compassionate side. Can we do compassion at 100% and discipline also at 100%? How does this work? Hmm. That's a good question. Um I think if you were to ask my family, they would say to you that I have always been disciplined. It's just sort of in my nature. Um, My parents never had to get on me to study um, or to do anything like that. I mean, the most was probably practicing the piano because I wasn't as keen on doing that. Um, Largely because my mom is a piano teacher. And so like, it was, it was like, I'm I'm never going to be as good as she is. So like, (laughs) you know. Um, my sister's the opposite. She actually followed right in in my mom's footsteps, but regardless, um, for me, the discipline thing, I guess just sort of comes second nature. Um, it's something that I don't really think a whole lot about, um, probably because I tend to put, once I make up my mind, now that's, that's the thing I have to decide for myself that the goal I'm after is worth it. Um, and once I make up my mind that it's worth it, then I'm all in. I, I will go 100% all in on that. If I don't think it's worth it, I probably won't even try. I'm going to assume that your instructors were really excellent and that they could pick up on that with you, that they didn't need to emphasize anything regarding discipline because they already knew that you were at 100%. Yeah, if anything, I was overly hard on myself Mm. Um, and so the teachers that I remember having that that I thought were probably some of my best teachers were the ones who actually tried to help me loosen up and and not be so disciplined and actually have some fun and actually um, be more compassionate toward myself which is which is probably why I am emphasizing compassion over Mm. discipline just in, in my personality 
But as a teacher and also as a psychologist, which is very much teaching, it's just a one-on-one <laughs> instead of in a classroom, um, I think that discipline doesn't come easy to everyone. And, and it certainly doesn't come easy to me in every area of my life, um, you know, especially during this pandemic. Uh, for as much as I value movement and moving, um, West Coast Swing has eventually, actually all dancing has essentially been shut down because of social distancing. Um, And people are offering it like via Zoom and, you know, you can do it in your living room by yourself and stuff, but it, 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 it is not at all the same and not nearly as fun. And so I haven't really actually been doing much of it because of that, right? If I was disciplined, I suppose that I would actually still be getting on the Zoom classes and practicing it myself in the living room and that sort of thing. But um, it's been harder with the everything shut down um, to to be as disciplined as I I was when it was more readily accessible, which is sad. For sure. Is there anything else that we should touch upon in terms of learning ballet or the differences between ballet and West Coast Swing or learning West Coast Swing before I move on to maybe a few big picture questions about dance and life? No, I mean, I think if people are are interested, um, now we have the internet and and, uh, YouTube is a fantastic thing, as is Google, so... Um, you can Google West Coast Swing and get a million videos. You can do the same thing with ballet. And if you really want to see what they look like and, and see the differences, I would encourage people to do that. Yeah. Well, I, I honestly, just my own personal thing, I just think swing is the coolest looking thing in the world. So fun. I don't yeah. know why I think that, but I, I've got this uh, ridiculous crush on the 1920s. If a person's allowed to have a crush on a uh-huh. decade. Yep. I, yep. I just I just love yeah. it. Absolutely everything about it I think is the coolest thing and the dances are just amazing. Yeah. So. And um and East Coast swing is more what people think of with the big band music with the and, and Lindy Hop and all that stuff. There's there's a whole bunch of different dances, shag and things that come from that. And then West Coast is sort of a combination of um night like uh, country western two step but with swing. Um, some one instructor um, who was trying to describe the difference said, "Yeah, West Coast Swing was when all the young Lindy Hoppers got old and got tired of leaning over to dance, and so they decided to stand up straight and slow it down." So <laughs> that's great. That's absolutely great. Okay, well, stepping back and kind of looking at the big picture, and maybe yeah. being able to give some other people just a little bit of advice. Suppose somebody out there is over 35 or over 40 and they would love to start the dance because they hear these conversations and of course it sounds very fun, very exciting and it might even provide them with some discipline that they need in their life, etc. But I guess what I'm wondering is do people have the right level of fitness or is it too late for them? And the reason I ask is because they probably also hear about these ballet, these professional ballet people who started training when they were four. And yeah, then they trained yeah. for like 20 years and then they made it. And so they're like, well, I'm not four anymore. My, my parents plopped me down in front of the TV. Is it too late for me? Yeah, no, it's certainly not too late. And, and West Coast Swing is actually one of the best dances for 
folks, because it really is a walking dance. If you can walk, you can West Coast swing. Um, and uh, at the studio I was at back in Kansas City, um, they actually had um, several folks who had Parkinson's disease, and they had actually learned West Coast or ballroom or, or a partner dance um, as a way to actually try to maintain um, movement and slow the disease, and, um, and it was working. It was actually really, really helpful. So um, I would say it is never too late to start to learn to dance. Um, I would uh, say, you know, you, you do want to make sure that you're able to um, stand on your feet uh, for about an hour um, and that you're able to do walking um, and movement for about an hour um, because that is about the minimum length of time for a dance class. Um, the right equipment is helpful. Um, so with West Coast Swing, you're on, usually you're on some form of a wooden floor. Um, and so you need to have some shoes that have a little bit of ability to slide. Um, you don't want to fall, so you don't want to be super slippery. Um, but you also don't want to do it in like tennis shoes with like rubber, rubber sole bottoms because what happens when you try to pivot is your shoe will not pivot and you could hurt yourself. So um, they do make special shoes um, for West Coast, but also ballroom and things like that. Um, or if you just come in, like women can come in some nice flats. Um, they even make like just shoes that are like ballet flats that just, they just need to have kind of a, 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 a more slippery surface. But again, nothing that where your feet are going to go out from underneath you. Um, so that's, that's really the only thing. I mean, and a lot of people West Coast swing, I myself, in like jeans and a t-shirt. So you don't have to wear any major special clothes or anything like that, um, which is a bonus. That's nice. Shoes for guys. Uh, yeah, shoes for guys. Um, anything that would be like a loafer, you know, something like that. Uh, I wouldn't wear anything that, and, and they make um, dance shoes for guys as well um, that are, very similar to loafers, but they have kind of that smooth bottom on them. Again, it's just something that you don't want to have um, a rubber sole with a hardwood floor because you will not pivot. Like your your knee might pivot, but the rest of you will not. So, <laughs> Okay. Um, how do people find time for something new? Uh, let's say, I don't know, you're 35 and you have four children and one of them is a baby. How do you yeah. find time for something new? Yeah. Um, well, you, you carve it out. If it's worth it to you, um, you'll carve it out, you know, and, and you see this happen all the time when people have major things happen in their lives, like they get a, a diagnosis or a family member gets sick or whatever. Suddenly, all of those things that you didn't think you had time for, you find a way and you make time. Um, and so if dancing is something that someone wants to try, then I would say find the time. Um, the nice part about, well, in a, in a non-pandemic world, <laughs> the nice part about um, West Coast Swing dancing is, or, or any kind of ballroom is that those classes are generally offered in the evenings um, and on the weekends because most of the people who are actually going to attend them tend to be adults um, who work or have obligations. So 
They also are usually offered like once a week. Um, so it's, a, it's similar to like if you wanted to go to a yoga class once a week or you wanted to go to um, the gym once a week or, or anything like that, you know, you don't have to do it the way that I did it. And um, you can certainly do it uh, by just going once a week. I, I love it. I love the whole idea of making time for these things. And I guess one of the best tips I ever heard for people who think they're too busy is uh, take out a calendar and track your time over uh-huh. the course of the week. Like every hour, write down what you did for the last hour. You don't have yep. to go into meticulous detail. But if you put down, hey, I worked from 9 to 5, I guess the question is, did you really? How much of that time was on social media? Uh, oh, no kidding. I'm like, I was just thinking, like, if I if I just took the amount of time that I spent either playing a video game on my phone or scrolling a social media platform, easy, an hour a day, easy. Well, in, in social media, there's a book called Irresistible by a psychologist named Adam Adler, and we could talk about that maybe at another point, but... I think at this point, it's kind of well established to people that a lot of social media was patterned after the slot machine in Las Vegas. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It is absolutely classical conditioning. They uh, figured out it's got the lights, it's got the bells, it's got the whistles, it's got the randomization. Uh, Something that I read along those lines, just a helpful life tip for people. Well, two things. One's negative, one's positive. That they took some rats and they put a little feeder in their cage and one of the feeders was you would pull a lever and it would put out a pellet and if it were an ordinary feeder every time you pulled the lever you would get a pellet these rats would be a normal sized rat and they would be perfectly healthy they probably didn't want to be in a cage but otherwise everything was cool then the second rat instead of it being a pellet dispenser it was a slot machine so it dispensed pellets randomly and it turned out that the rats would eat themselves to death. They would just pull that damn lever like three million times because they never knew what they were going to get and they found that intriguing and that is your social media scroll. Yes, gives you you a hit of dopamine every time. Yeah, yeah. And so, or you get that hit of dopamine randomly like every eight times or every six times or, and well, then the thing that I heard that was positive and actually since I'm detouring, I'll, I'll just ask you because you have a PhD in psychology. (laughs) I heard another PhD in clinical psychology say that the best way to beat an addiction is to have something better to do. I would agree with that. That if you have something better to do, you will do that thing. I mean, I'm sure you have to commit yourself to it, but a huge reason people get on social media is because they're bored. But if you had something better to do, you would just go do it. Right. But you have to believe that it's better to do. You do. And, and that is one of the biggest things is just getting your own mind to shift. Okay. So, well, let's get back to accomplishing something awesome, which is okay. maybe taking dance, maybe doing something else. What sure. if somebody says, you know, this is expensive. Okay. How, so how, with the swing classes in Kansas, the going rate was $10 a class. Okay. Okay. So if someone went to Starbucks twice or three times a week, there's your $10. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Well, the teenagers here, some of them are making $12 an hour working at Target. Yeah. Now in Florida, it's a little more expensive. Um, It is anywhere from $12 to $15 a class. 
Uh, but still, uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's actually cheaper than going to the movies. That's on par with if you get a meal at a fast food restaurant, um, that sort of thing. Okay. So. Um, I think a lot of people will start something exciting like a dance class with a real burst of enthusiasm. They've been anticipating this. Maybe they have to overcome some internal obstacles and then they get into it and then maybe they really like it. But I think after about four classes, they realize, you know, this is a real grind. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I like this, but this is pushing me. Um, this is fun, but it's exhausting. How do you stick with something that is both exhilarating and just another job? Yeah, yeah. Um, for me, it has always been having some sort of goal that is worthwhile. So um, with with my journey with West Coast Swing, um, I was exposed on my first day just about to the showcase dances. And so I saw that and I was like, oh man, I would love to do that. And so that became my first goal was just to do one of those showcase dances. And once I did one of those, I was like, ooh, I want to do another one. And my teacher was like, well, why don't you do another one, but let's take it and compete it. Um, which adds another layer and another level of like, not only do we want to perform it just this one time, but we want to actually perform it several times so that we can go and get it competed other places. Um, so I think having those shorter goals um, is really important to being able to sustain something long term. And, you know, if, if all I did was take classes, like in my years doing ballet, um, if all I did was take classes, I would get bored with it. Um, it, it required having the performances mm. and, and we did performances twice a year. So I, I always had kind of a study. Okay. What's the next one going to be? What's the next one going to be? Um, there for a while I, uh, I was running and I had a goal of, I just want to run a mile. And then once I got to where I could run a mile, then I was like, you know what? I think I want to do one of the races. That's like a 5k. Um, and I ended up signing up for the trolley run in Kansas city, which is actually a, um, it's a four mile race. It's That's longer right. than a 5k. Yeah. It's four <laughs> miles. I didn't know that. That was my first race. So. <laughs> um, and then I, after that, I, I did a second one, um, uh, and then I got injured and, you know, so the running stopped for a while, but, but having those goals, um, I think is really important to sustain whatever you're going to do. I, I think so too. I really found that out running marathons. I, I ran a lot of marathons, uh, dozens of marathons. And usually in life, it just helped me maintain focus. I'd, I'd finish a marathon and then I might have about three or four, I don't know, kind of like listless days where I'm just kind of like randomly floating through life, you know, a piece of driftwood on the lake. And uh, then I would realize I need to sign up for another marathon. And then, it would, yeah. and then I would do yeah. that. And then it, it would just forced me to clean up my diets, clean up my sleep patterns, clean up what I was drinking, uh, make me do some complimentary weightlifting, uh, mm -hmm. put me on a running schedule. And then all of that forced me to discipline myself at work. Well, I, I couldn't work like 12 hours a day. No, I had to get it done in six or seven or eight, you know, because I had to kind of work on the fitness component. Right, so, right. And then I had to keep my house clean because, well, I'm only going to be able to go shopping about once every two weeks and I might have to cook in batches and 
just a lot of things had to become very structured and scheduled just to support my marathon junkie habit. Yep, yep. Um, you know, from a from a psychological standpoint, routine is one of those things that really is beneficial in keeping depression at bay. And um, so, just just in terms of kind of where we're at with the pandemic and all that, and people are bored and they're stuck inside and. Um, in my job, I'm seeing most recently in the last month a very large spike in um, in depression. Mm. Um, and one of the things that's happened is people just don't have a routine anymore because they don't have a goal. They're like, well, what am I going to look forward to? Everything is closed and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, you know, I tell people like, no, you really do need to actually like get up, get out of bed, take a shower, <laughs> eat. Do a routine and, and figure out some little goals, whatever those little things are that you can go, yes, at least I did that. If I did nothing else, at least I did that. Um, and that actually helps build resiliency in people, and it's very protective against de uh, depression in particular. So, Do you feel that dance builds resilience in people, or do you think resilient people are attracted to dance, or is the whole thing just a virtuous circle? I think that dance can definitely build resilience in the way that any activity that um, requires long-term dedication, pushing yourself, um, failing, learning how to work through failure, um, that bounce back. Uh, that's what builds resilience is, is being able to bounce back um, when something throws you off your game. And so I don't think that dance is exclusively something that can build resilience. Um, I, I know a lot of resilient people in the dance world, but I know a lot of resilient people in all kinds of places. So um, I think the thing that is the key to resilience is making sure that you can bounce back. And how you do that is by making sure that you have more things that protect you and build you up than things that tear you down. Mm. Now it's, it's sometimes hard to do that because life happens. Right. And sometimes yeah. there are so many things that come fast and furious that tear you down. That's where people get in trouble is when they don't have enough resources to cope with the stuff that's tearing them down and they can't bounce back. So, I, I think that's very true. I mean, there's there's any number of cliches that are floating around out there that I like. You know, one is that you are the average of the five people that you hang around with the most. Uh-huh. And if yeah. one of those people is, I don't know, actively working against you in some way, shape, or form, well, then I, I feel like, hey, we internalize that. And then yeah. we figure out ways to work against ourselves, even when that person isn't in the room or in the house. Um, right. Yeah. So then, yeah, if you've got four positives and one negative, well, that's four minus one, then you've got three, but it's probably not as good as three because, you know, that negative being there, that's just, you know, you're constantly getting nibbled to death by ducks. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and it helps even if you have just one person in your life that has a positive influence on you, that increases the likelihood that you're going to be resilient. Now, let me ask, related to resilience, is failure. Like, what is your concept of failure? Uh, I guess my concept is 
when I didn't try it in the first place. So like if I go to the dance class and if I'm the dumbest pupil there for 10 weeks in a row, then my real failure is if I don't go to the class. It's not that I'm coming in last every single week. That, that's my concept of failure. But, but I've had to talk myself into that. I didn't come out of the womb with this idea of failure. Yeah, yeah. Failure is an interesting concept, and it has definitely been an Achilles heel for me. Like, if there's if there's one thing that is going to send me in a downward spiral, it is me thinking of myself as a failure. Um, so it's something I've also done a whole lot of work on in myself to kind of fight against and it, it, to reframe how to think about failure instead of I am a failure. That is something that maybe I failed at. Right. Um, and, and that is a big shift. Uh, it's, it's taking away the internalizing of it and making it me as a person is a complete and total failure versus that is a task that I did not succeed at. <laughs> Therefore, that is a task that I failed at. <laughs> um, but that doesn't make me, as a person, a total and complete failure. Um, and that's a shift that when I'm in my good moments and, and I'm feeling good and I got enough um, emotional uh, water in my bucket, so to speak, um, it's easy to kind of keep that as my mindset, you know, I'm not a failure and, and it's just this thing that I didn't succeed at, but that doesn't mean that I won't succeed some other time. You know, um, it's when we are in our lower moments, myself in particular, and I'm already in that kind of like place where I feel like things are not going well, that that's when that I am a failure sort of thing creeps in. Okay. And, and as I said, I mean, it's something I've struggled with my whole life. So, so um, for, for you, it's a matter of separating the event or one particular story from globally you, the person. That's really yeah. for you the key. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and for me, that makes a lot of sense. And then maybe that's similar to maybe it's separate from, I guess, my concept that the real failure for me is just not showing up at the class because I'm too chicken to show up at the class. Yeah. And see, um, that, that's another way of thinking about it. And, and that's a, it's a good way to, I think, get yourself out of the mindset of you. Well, other than calling yourself a chicken. So. <laughs> right, 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 right. Well, just for that one day, like I don't want to chicken out on Monday. You know, right, right. So, or I could say, hey, I was brave 51 Mondays in a row, but last Monday I chickened out, you know. Yeah, um, yeah that's kind of my attitude. I, I write fiction every morning and my attitude is, is if one morning goes particularly poorly, hey, at least I showed up. Mm -hmm. You know, and then oftentimes you find that the results maybe a week later, two weeks later are better than you thought. Like maybe you thought that Monday was a big bomb out but actually it it wasn't anywhere near that bad in fact sometimes the results are quite good sometimes you startle yourself so yeah yeah it, it i think it definitely helps people to keep going when you can frame it that way um like you know this is just one day that i maybe didn't make it or i can choose to view it as like at least I got myself there. You know, I may not have done anything else that day, but at least I did that. That that's a win. Yeah. You know. 
Yeah, you were there. Okay, so just one last question along this subject is um, when people choose a goal, they have a motive behind a goal oftentimes. You know, like for example, somebody might say, oh, I want to take this dance class. Then what's a good goal to shoot for? Um, what's a goal that's going to motivate you and sustain you? Um, but I'll, I'll just give you an example. I just think that there's any number of people out there who have been trying to lose that last 20 pounds for mm -hmm. roughly the last 20 years. Right. And, and so somebody once said that if you give, give me a big goal, I will cross the United States. I will crawl across broken glass naked. But if you give me a little goal, I won't even get up out of bed in the morning. I'm just kind of curious. What do you think makes for a good motive to pursue a goal? Versus, say, a bad motive to pursue a goal. Um, not quite sure I'm understanding what you're asking. Well, okay, I'll, I'll give a story, and it might help, it might not help. Maybe this is just a little funny concept in my head, and maybe it has no relevance to other people, but I, I think it might. So when I was writing marathons, I read this article about these 104 people who had signed up for marathon training. And three-fourths of them dropped out in the middle of the training. So like something like 79 people and 25 people actually completed the training and they ran the marathon and they found that the people who were successful had usually one of two goals or both. They either wanted to make a gigantic psychological transformation in their life. They wanted mm -hmm. to become another person, in other words, or they wanted to get closer to God mm -hmm. or both. And then the dropouts, their motive was either to lose weight or to gain status among their friends. Yeah. And that was yeah. powerful to me. It, it just made me think, gosh, I can have really inspiring motives that involved personal transformation, or I could have weight and status goals. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when I think about it that way, and I'm thinking through my own kind of life and moments when I succeeded in maintaining my motivation and, and moments when I didn't. Um, it's those times when I actually wanted to do something for myself, like, like getting back into dance for me was a, a very personal, I want to reclaim this part of my life and I want to actually start having fun again. Um, and so I did, you know, and, and like getting the doctorate, that was actually really personal. It was a goal that I'd have ever since I was a little girl, but I never found the thing that I wanted to spend that much time and that much effort. And, and when I finally found a subject area that I was like, no, you know what? I think I really could spend that much time and that much effort studying this. Um, that, that's when I succeeded in that. And that's when I actually tried. I think that when people in general um, do things for other people as their motives versus doing it for themselves, and I would also, I like how you put that there, or doing it for God, um, or maybe flip those around, do it for God or yourself, um, that when they're doing them for other people, other people are going to disappoint you, other people are going to change their minds, um, other people are very variable. And um, it makes it less likely that you're going to actually succeed if that is your only reason. That's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Um, just the last few questions, I guess, on 
what dance can do for a person. Is there anything you'd like to add in terms of dance either making a person more humble or more confident or just helping them laugh more or just what, whatever <laughs> you want to say? All of those things. Um, if you are, if you've never danced before, it can feel very intimidating because when you get to a dance class, it's going to feel like everybody else knows what they're doing and I don't and I'm on display. But what you don't know is that everybody else, A, already felt that way, their first dance class, um, but B, they're most often not actually paying attention to you mm-hmm. in a dance class. They're paying attention to themselves and trying to get it right themselves. Um and, and there's a lot of failing that happens in a dance class. Uh, very rarely are people actually getting it right, right on the first try. Um, and a lot of times there can be some very funny, happy accidents that happen that cause a good laugh. Um, but when you keep going, and I saw this over and over when I would um, uh, go to social dances, and you would see people there for the very first time, And then you would see them keep coming back and keep coming back and they would improve. It's a very, very cool way to boost your confidence in a tangible way um, because you actually see a difference. And the people that you dance with make comments a lot of the time like, wow, you've really improved. You've really gotten better. So it can be a a nice confidence booster there too. That's pretty awesome. Well, you're making me think that dance really is kind of like going back to an eighth grade dance. (laughs) It can be. Yeah. (laughs) Everybody is thinking, oh my gosh, all these people are staring at me. And the exact opposite is true. Nobody gives a crap. What they're really obsessed over is how bad they themselves look. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's pretty much how it is. Um, That shifts or changes the... When you get to the upper levels um, where people have been doing it for years and they, they know how to do the dance and things like that, then it, it often shifts into more of a comparison and, and people are watching and things like that. But, but not when you are first starting out. Oh, my gosh, not when you're first starting out. So. Okay. Well, I have maybe just two more questions. Um, okay. What is what should I have asked that I didn't ask? I honestly don't know how to answer that question, Tim, because I think you've asked some fantastic questions. And um, and gosh, uh, I, I don't have a good answer for that one. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you to say. Um, let me end with this question. This is actually my favorite question. I, I ask everybody this question. Okay. We are going to fast forward to you being 100 years old. And you are sitting on the front porch of your house and your loving husband is holding your hand, and you have family gathered nearby, and you are looking back on a wonderful long life, all of your time in dance and performance, and I just want to know what really stands out. Somebody says, what stands out, and what do you say? Mm. Um... I think something that stands out to me is just how many varied and different experiences I've had in my life. Sometimes I look back and I'm like, I sort of feel like I've lived several different lives all in one. 
um, just based off the different careers or the different um, periods in my life, um, I would say something that stands out is just that I, I think I try to live with um, compassion. I try to remember that the whole reason I'm here in the first place is because of God and um, that he created me with some gifts and um, that he wanted me to use them and that I very often did not know how to use them, what they were, or where it was going to end up. Um, but when I trusted God to lead the way, it led me in some amazing directions that I would never in a million years have thought would be in my life. Um, and led me to some amazing people um, that I also would never have thought of in a million years. And and just my work as a teacher and a counselor has been super important to me and has taught me um, just the amazing resilience of the human spirit. Um, I, I am in awe of how much junk people can survive um and how they can absolutely get healed um and transform and and i've been a witness to so many of those moments and and that has been truly humbling to just watch god heal people and to be able to have been a little bit of an instrument in some of that has been amazing Christy, that's an absolutely beautiful answer. And I just really want to thank you for sharing your experience. We we talked about dance, but I feel like we use that as a lens to discuss a lot of things that are more important, like resilience and goal setting and what success and failure really are. So I just, I really appreciate you. And I'm just very grateful that you spoke with me about these topics. Oh, you're welcome. It was, it was so fun, Tim. I really, really loved it. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Seemingly Ordinary. The next episode will appear on a Tuesday or a Friday. The biggest favor you could do for me would be for you to share this episode far and wide.